Well, this morning we get to continue on in Genesis. We get to go through chapter two. We started this series last week and we get to continue on with it in getting into the clearest view that we get of what the world was like before sin and the curse came into it. Um, And so like last week, I'm going to start off by just reading an extended passage. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. So if you have a Bible, please do go ahead and turn there so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses up here on the screen for you to follow along with. It's a little bit of an extended passage for us to read together, but we believe that this is God's word, and we believe that God speaks when his word is read. So I'm going to take the time to read through it. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. Let's take a moment and pray before we walk through this passage. Father, thank you that you not only hear us when we speak to you, but thank you that you speak. Thank you that you've spoken um, and spoken about things that we couldn't possibly know and we would be so much worse for not having the ability to know. 
Father, as we walk through this part of your word, we pray that you open our eyes. We pray that you lead us in how you're calling us to respond. We pray that even the experience of walking through this would be an act of worship where we would be filled with awe and wonder and gratitude for all you've done. Father, we pray that you speak to us today and I pray that you lead me that anything I say, everything I say will be right, will be on target and will be helpful to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, Genesis 1 walks through the creation of the world. And one of the things that I mentioned of, of why I'm so excited about us going through the book of Genesis is because with all of the problems, with all of the baggage that we bring to our lives, with all the baggage that we brought in here on this Sunday morning, our foundational problems are addressed by what's going on in Genesis. It's not going to give you four steps to a better life. But Genesis is going to get back to the foundations of who God is, who we are, what this world is, and what all of this is for. And if we are living in light of those things, God will be leading us through the challenges that we face. And we're going to focus, and I mentioned this also last week, but each week we'll take an extended passage of Genesis and kind of cover what goes on in it, but then take a specific portion of that and dig deeper. So we're going to do that with verses 15 through 25 of chapter 2. But before that, let me just kind of set the, set the table for this, because there's a couple things in here that are worth pointing out. Genesis 2, 4, our passage begins with the words, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And those words, this is the account of, is a constant refrain through Genesis. I want to show this to you just to show you Genesis is not an accidentally assembled book. It's very purposeful in its structure. And so this phrase, this is the account of, shows up nine times. This is just the first one. You can see it in chapter 5, chapter 10, 11, twice in chapter 11. And then it comes with the account of Ishmael, account of Isaac, account of Esau, account of Jacob. The point of showing this is just to show that this is the marker throughout the book of Genesis to show us that as Moses is assembling this, there's intentionality of showing the flow of this book. And we're just in the first section, the account of the heavens and the earth. And one other thing I wanted to talk about that might have stood out is I'll, I'll put verses 10 through 14 up again. I, I won't read them again. But this is one where it talks about the four rivers and the gold and the onyx. And you might have been thinking, why in the world is this in here? I mean, there are times in the Bible that we read apart and we just say, why is this included? Nothing is accidentally included in God's word. There's a purpose for everything. And I believe that the purpose for this is actually pretty apparent. The reason this is in here is because Moses is marking for us that he is not here communicating myth. He is here communicating history says, you know about these rivers, you know about these places, you've heard about the gold in this place. He is putting the story of the Garden of Eden in real space and in real time in real history. He's not telling us a creative account that's meant to teach us a spiritual lesson. He's telling us about something that really happened. And what this passage focuses in on was something that was touched on in chapter one, and that's the creation and identity of mankind. So if you're here last week, or just if, if you're familiar, chapter one sets humanity apart from everything else in creation. Because God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over all the livestock, all the wild animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. We are unique. Human beings are unique. You probably know that intuitively, but in an age where we kind of communicate, human beings are just another animal, we have appetites, you know, our real purpose in life is just to find food, find shelter, find sex, fulfill our appetites in some way. 
What we get from Genesis is no, we are different from everything else. We are divinely created. We bear God's image. And then part of what God says in his initial command is be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And just as a real quick note on this, um, I, I'm not, not going to assume all of you were here last week. And even for those that, you are, that were, I'm not going to assume you remember every single thing I said, <laughs> even though I'd like to. But, um, but in the six days of creation, what, what we see is we see three days where God forms the earth and three days where God fills the earth. He fills and then he forms. Now just look at verse 28 again. Look at the last part of the verse. He says to the man and the woman, fill the earth and subdue it. To subdue it means to sort of bring it under your control. In essence, God creates mankind in his image and God says, all right, I formed and I filled. Now you guys form and fill. Subdue the earth, that's the forming, Filling the earth is what comes through procreation. God basically says, you're created in my image. And so that means in a small way, you're going to do what I've done. This points towards the idea, once again, we as human beings, our core identity is not just that we're a collection of appetites and instincts, but that we were created for a purpose. And the reason that we know we were created for a unique purpose is because we were uniquely created. We are uniquely designed by the God of the universe. And what we're going to get in chapter two is we're going to get a glimpse because sometimes when we say we're created in God's image, we're not necessarily sure what what does that mean? How does that flow out? How are we unique from the animals and everything else in all creation? And you're not going to get an exhaustive answer from this in Genesis 2, but you're going to get some clues. In fact, we'll talk about three things that we see that are the core part of the purpose for which we were created. And we'll spend, I'll just tell you right now as this flows out, we're going to spend the most time on the third one because that's the one that Moses spends the most time on. But there are three things that we see in this passage about the purpose for which we were created. And we'll walk through those together. First one is in verse 15. And what we see here is that mankind was created for work. Now it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. Now, some of you might be thinking, now, wait a second. I thought work came when sin came into the world. Isn't work here because of all the problems? Isn't work here because we're cursed and we live in frustration? And you're going to see this next week when we go through chapter three. But actually, the answer is no. Work didn't start with the fall. Work existed before the fall. When the fall came, the problem that happened is that work no longer worked. The idea was not that God said to Adam, now you're going to have to work. The idea was that God said to Adam, now your work isn't going to work. Now you're going to put forth a lot of effort and you're not going to see commensurate results. By the way, isn't one of your big frustrations in life that there are times that you put in a lot of effort and that doesn't guarantee you're going to see results? Thank you, Debbie. Yes. It's one of the things. In fact, a lot of you have jobs, and, and sometimes, sometimes you do have jobs where you're like, all right, I'm supposed to build this fence, and I built the fence, and there's the fence, and I know the fence is built. But a lot of other times in our jobs, or even in, in sort of work that you do, maybe volunteer things that you do here around the church, maybe you're leading a life group, you can't always know. You can get to the end and say, well, the life group meeting happened. We accomplished that. 
But also sometimes you get to the end and you wonder like, did anybody get anything? Did this happen? Did, did somebody's life get changed? Are, are people being impacted by God's word? We do work and we don't necessarily see commensurate results. But work is not part of the fall. Work is something that's good. Work is why God put the man in the garden. We were created to be industrious. We were created to be like God and be creative. And by the way, just on this, there is, um, there's a very real and, uh, and important way for us as human beings to look at the world and see that we, we have stewardship over this world. So issues like pollution, those are real issues that we need to look at as Christians and say, all right, this matters. We're meant to take care of this planet. But there is an environmental mindset that is clearly not Christian. And the environmental concept that I'm talking about is the idea that we would have in our heads, God wants this world to look as if we were never here. That is not a Christian idea. That's not what we see through this passage. We don't see God getting Adam and Eve together and saying, all right, here's the garden. When I get back, this better look exactly how I left it. In fact, the idea here is, if I get back and this looks exactly how I left it, you're not doing your job. Build a little wall over there and take these flowers and try them over there and get the river to go and water everything and build a house for yourselves. The idea here is that man is meant to be productive. This earth is better for us being on it. There really is, and again, this is not all environmentalists, but there's an environmental mindset that we are sort of a disease and a drag on the planet. That is not a Christian idea. In fact, just as a, by the way, the problem of overpopulation is not a Christian problem. Because you know what's better than one human being created in God's image? Two human beings created in God's image. We are image bearers, the more, the better. We are a gift to this planet. We are not a drag on this planet. And God says to the man, go and do work. And we complain about work. And we like to rest, but I want you just to think for a second. We are designed to work, even outside of our jobs. We are designed to be productive. We just, we know this, we instinctively do things that betray this all the time. We even work in our leisure. I'll give you an example, and I guarantee, because I know some of you, I guarantee this will happen later today. Later today, a bunch of you are going to watch football. Now, watching football is not work. You're not doing anything productive. But we've created this thing in the United States called fantasy football. And I promise you that this is a God-ordained thing. The reason why, I'm telling you, the reason why fantasy football exists is because somebody figured out that even in our leisure, we are designed to feel like we're being productive. So you'll see Todd Gurley score a touchdown. You didn't do anything. But you'll get excited because you'll say, I drafted him and put him on my team. And I played him and put the other guy on the bench. I accomplished something. Even in our leisure, we want to be productive. And as much as most of us would probably say, oh, I would love to just have a weekend where I could just rest and sleep and just overeat and just you know, not leave the house and watch TV. I'd love that. If you had a weekend where you got to do that, you know how you would feel at the end of it? you would feel as worthless as you've ever felt. We are not created just to take up space. We are created 
to work, which at the very least means in the work that God set before us, whether it's our jobs, whether it has to do with our kids or our homes, we should be doing that. We should not only be fulfilling our responsibilities, but we should be creative with it. We should be looking to be industrious with it. And beyond that, it also means we should constantly be looking for ways to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given us for his glory and to reflect his creativity. We were created for work. But we weren't only created for work, we were also created for choice. And this is laid into in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Now next week, and so come back next week when we gather, Next week, we'll, we'll really get into this whole idea of the, the, what's the deal with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I won't get into it deeply right now, but next week, we'll talk a lot about this. That's because right now, I just want to focus on this question. Why in the world put this tree in the garden? God's in charge of this. This is bad. You're not supposed to do this. Don't eat from this. And there it is right in the middle of the garden. This seems in some ways like bad parenting by God. <laughs> He's like, don't watch the TV. Here's the remote. But don't do it. Like, why does God do this? At the same time, I think most of us kind of know, we know why God does this. Because if God set us up in a situation where there was no choice to obey him or to disobey him, it wouldn't be a real relationship. We'd be robbed of our dignity as image bearers if our choices didn't have weight to them. Now, on top of this, man is a moral creature. Mankind is a moral creature. Unlike animals that just live by instinct, you know, we don't have, you know, courts of law for a bear and like, you shouldn't have done that. We, we recognize we're, we're unique. We're moral creatures. We're moral creatures. That means our decisions have weight. And this means that human beings bring greater destruction on the earth than any other creature. But it also means that we bring about greater good than any other creature. And the choice is what makes it meaningful. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. This happened about a week ago in our family. Um, I was taking, I'm coaching my youngest son's soccer team. He's six years old. I was about to take him to practice. And that day of practice, we were gonna do a game um, where, where all the parents and all the siblings were gonna get in and we were just gonna all play together to kind of celebrate the halfway point of the season. Um, and David's older brother, Jack, does not like sports. And so he was just going to stay home, and I was going to take David to practice. Um, and David didn't know this. David thought Jack was going to come along. And uh, when we were on our way out the door, literally opened the door about to go, it was at this point that David realized Jack wasn't going to come. And David tried to hold it together, but he was really, really sad. He really, I know, ah, uh, all right. All right. <laughs> he really, really wanted his brother there with him. And, and again, he's trying to hold it together, but I didn't, realize, I didn't realize how meaningful it was going to be to David and how sad he would be that Jack wasn't coming. So at that point, and again, sometimes as a dad, I'm just like, I'm the dad, you're the kid, you're going to do what I say. I could have done that. I could have just said, Jack, put on your shoes, you're going. Um, but instead, I said, it's up to you, Jack. You're allowed to stay here, but you can see that David really wants you to come. Do you want to come or do you want to stay? Um, and Jack just said, let me go get my shoes. I know, it's like... <laughs> You gotta soak in the parenting wins. <laughs> but really, I get choked up just talking about it. And, and the reason is that if I just said to Jack, Jack, you're going, he would have done it. He, he would have obeyed me. And David would have been glad that Jack was there instead of being at home because he wanted to be with his brother. 
But when David was sitting in the car and he realized that the only reason his brother came was because his brother loved him, it was really, really meaningful. God gives us as human beings the dignity of choice, the dignity of morality or of immorality. That means that the way that we walk through and making decisions about the sin in our life, about how we're trying to live for righteousness, about the way we even talk about sin and righteousness of other people, this is meant to be something that reflects God, that reflects the idea that there is a right and a wrong and that our choices have real weight. We were created for work and we were created for choice. But the third part and the longest part is that we were created for relationship. And this all leads to the creation of the woman. But just even the setup of this, think about this for a second. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It seems like it would just follow that part of the core of who we are is we are created for relationships. Even those of us who are introverts, we need at least like two people in our lives. We all need relationship. And the way this passage unfolds, it's beautiful, but I'm just going to say, I also think it's funny. It's comical. There's something that relates to us on this because in verse 18, God, for the first time, after saying the plants are good and the water is good and the fish are good and the birds are good and mankind is good and this whole creation is very good, in verse 18, he says, it is not good. I just love that the thing that's not good is he's looking at the man and he's like, oh boy, This boy needs some help. (laughs) I got to do something here. This boy needs some help. And so I am going to make a helper suitable to him. Now, of course, we've already read it. This is leading up to the creation of women as as the gift here. Now, let me just talk about a couple of things with the, the, uh, the whole idea of the helper suitable. Because one of the things that we see here that I think is beautiful and is profound and is hugely important for us in 2018 is that the book of Genesis clearly depicts the man and the woman as equals. Male and female, he created them. We are both image bearers. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, we are co-heirs of the grace of life. We are 100% equal. And at the same time, there is no way to get around the idea that we are different and that those differences matter. So we live in a world that thankfully champions, we live in a culture that champions the fact that we're equal and that's good. But we also live in a culture that champions the idea that we are not different and that any differences will automatically lead to oppression and alienation. And that is not true. When we downplay our differences, we actually undercut the beauty of God's design. But when he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable to him, what he's not saying is, well, man really has my image, so I'll just get him an assistant. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated helper here is actually, the vast majority of the times that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to God. God is not a weak helper. He's saying, I need a partner for this man. In fact, when he says a helper suitable, the whole idea of suitable is the idea of equal and alongside. Saying, all right, I got this guy here and uh, he's going to do his best, but he's going to need some help. So I'm going to bring him a suitable helper. 
I'll just, I'll just say this before we unfold with the story. This is absolutely consistent with everything that, uh, else that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament about the man and the woman having different roles in marriage, in life, in society, in the church. Um, and part of the, the way that Paul depicts it in the New Testament within marriage is he says, the man is the head of the woman or the husband is the head of the wife. And for most of us, when we read that, we think, well, well that's talking about domination or that's talking about authority. When it says the man is the head of the wife, what it's saying is the man has authority. And, and that's not totally untrue. There, there is authority built into that idea. But the main idea there is not authority. The main idea there is responsibility. The man is primarily responsible. And by the way, you, we're, we're going to find this out as we go through next week. That idea plays itself out in chapter 3. Because, you know, spoiler alert, in chapter 3, they eat the fruit. All right, it's going to happen next week. <laughs> Who... Who is the first one to eat the fruit? Eve. Yeah, Eve is the first one to eat the fruit. And yet, throughout the entire Old and New Testament, who is blamed? Adam is blamed. In the New Testament, you don't have the Apostle Paul saying, we all sinned in Eve. He says, we all sinned in Adam. Adam could have been like, what did I do? I just did what she said. You gave me this woman, and she gave me the fruit, and she's really pretty. Now, what was I supposed to do? I just ate. God holds Adam primarily responsible. In fact, again, you're going to see this next week. There's a threefold curse that happens after the fall of man. The serpent is cursed and basically is cursed for himself. The woman is cursed and basically cursed for himself. And when he comes to the man, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. The whole earth falls with the man. There's a great weight of responsibility. So for those of us that are men, if you're, if you're hearing this and you're like, finally, finally, a sermon that's saying that there's something good about being a man and that there's weight to this and that we have responsibility and leadership, that's good. Celebrate that. That's who God has made you to be. But realize then your calling is to take on the, the weight of responsibility to say, you know what? Within our home, the buck stops with me to make sure we raise our kids in a godly way. When it comes to church, it's my job to lead the charge with us getting involved in God's work around the world. When it comes to finances, it's my job to lead the charge to make sure we're really giving generously. And when it comes to our relationship and all the ins and outs that go along with marriage, it's my job to track down and resolve conflict instead of just waiting for her to fix it for me. There's a special weight of responsibility that we have as men. And when, when masculinity and femininity are played out in the way that God has created us to be, it is a beautiful, profound thing. We are equal, and yet we're different. And the next part of this passage also makes me laugh because God says, all right, I need a helper uh, suitable for you. And so he brings all the animals. <laughs> and part of this is because Adam is going to exercise dominion by naming the animals, but also part of that is that God is bringing candidates. <laughs> and Adam's like, giraffe and no. <laughs> he just goes through the animals, names them, and, it, and it's funny because it says at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, which implies the idea that it was like, nah, yeah, none of these will work. This isn't going to be the deal. So God puts Adam to sleep. Now, you're going to see this again in chapter 15 of Genesis. God puts Abraham to sleep when God is about to make a great promise to him. For the creation of the woman, God puts man to sleep. Like, you're not going to be involved in this at all. This is going to be the work of God. He puts Adam to sleep, takes one of his ribs, um, and I'll just say this real quick again, because I think nothing in the Bible is by accident, that there's, there's no coincidences. People could ask, why the rib? That seems kind of random. But scholars have said this, and I think that there's something to this. Said, you know what? When God created the woman, he didn't create her from man's feet that she would be stepped on. He didn't create her from man's head 
so that she would rule over him. He created her from man's ribs so that she would be close to his heart and alongside him. I, just, I think that there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I think the location does tell us something here. Um, so he takes the rib. Verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib. She'd taken it, he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And this really is kind of marriage imagery. This is the father walking the daughter down the aisle and presenting her. Now, just so you can see part of the positive masculinity that comes through in this exchange, look at how Adam responds. Because Adam doesn't look at Eve and say, Finally, somebody that I can boss around. <laughs> he doesn't say, Finally, somebody to do all the tasks that I don't want to do. He really, in essence, says, finally, somebody to cherish and protect. Finally, somebody to sacrifice for. A man breaks into poetry. The first poem in the Bible. This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the very first action point that's talked about is that men will leave things behind because women are that valuable to them. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The positive masculinity in this passage is God says, here's my gift to you, and it's the woman. And the man says, I'll leave everything behind so that I can be a part of that. And then the final verse in this beautiful passage about what went on before the fall is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Which the, the, the power of this is, is easy for you to tell if you've ever had one of those dreams where you're naked in public. Because the idea of that is so horrible to us because when you're naked in front of people, you feel shame. You feel embarrassment. You want to hide. And God says, they're completely open to each other. They're completely open to God. There is nothing to hide. The beauty of this makes us long for God to finally fix everything because we know we're not living in this now. God has created us to be workers, to be industrious. God has created us to be moral creatures and has created us for the sake of relationship. And the idea of embracing God's purposes for us is not just, well, that will make us more morable, productive citizens. He said, if we embrace God's purposes for us, that's what it means to be human. That's what it means to live out God's image. When we're looking at the problems in the world and we're saying, all right, we're going to take dominion. We're going to figure this thing out. All right, so we got hunger and we got pollution. You know what? We got a bunch of people created in God's image. We're going to figure this out. And that means that in a marriage, that a man and woman aren't just saying, well, we're fighting and we can't figure this out. We might as well dissolve this. They say, no, wait a minute. We're image bearers. We're created in God's image. We're meant to conquer. We're meant to rule. So we're going to conquer the problem in our marriage. We're going to figure this out. We're going to keep talking. We're going to get counseling. We are going to win over this because we're created in God's image. It means when we have sin in our lives, that we don't just say, well, I'm a victim to my temptations, that we figure it out and we say, all right, I'm going to get into life care. I'm going to get into celebrate recovery. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to take steps in my life. I'm going to exercise dominion instead of acting like a victim here. But you know, there is a problem that we have that even though we're image bearers, we can't solve. And the problem that we can't solve is the biggest problem that we face. Because the biggest problem of humanity comes in chapter 3 where our biggest problem is not hunger, it's not pollution, it's not divorce, it's not any of those things. Our biggest problem is that we are guilty before God and we deserve to be condemned. And even though we're made in the image of God, there's no way for us to solve this problem. But there is a way for somebody else to solve this problem. We are made in the image of God. Jesus 
is the image of the invisible God. We're made for work. Jesus came and said, I do the work that my father has set before me. We're made for choices. Jesus, in another garden, said to the father, if there's any way out of the sacrifice that I'm about to make, I'll take it. But not my will, but your will be done. We're made for relationships. And we were so precious to Jesus that he left behind father, came to this earth and gave his life for us. With Jesus, we not only have our Savior, but with Jesus, we also have the perfect picture of the image of God. We also have the perfect laying out, laying out in life of what it means to exercise dominion in the way that Jesus did. We can't solve our greatest problem, but Jesus did solve our greatest problem. And for all of us here, for all of us who are believers, we are experiencing a greater level of humanity because of that. And for any of you here, who aren't believers in Jesus, who aren't Christians, the invitation to place your faith in Jesus is not simply an invitation to join a religion. The invitation to place your faith in Jesus is the invitation to start living more fully in what it means to be human and who God's created us to be. Let me pray for us as we close our time. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you've given us the gift of being unique and of bearing your image. You're a good father and you're a good creator. Father, I pray that you lead us to live in light of how you've made us, that we wouldn't be satisfied with just coasting or being lazy, that we would long to fulfill the work you've set before us, that we wouldn't be satisfied with acting like we're victims to our circumstances, but that we would make the choices that lean into our relationship with you and that bear fruit that we wouldn't be satisfied with being isolated and alone, but that we would embrace the relationships that you've set before us and live sacrificially in light of those. Father, we cling to you. Lead us to be people who so respond to the purpose for which you've created us that we shine your light to the people around us. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.